Don't you wanna die happy with a smile on your face? Wake up a laughing, <laughs> cause you're free of all the things that would hold you from your Keith. Why did you wait until your 70s to sit with ayahuasca? Wow, that's a good question. Um, let, let me just answer that by telling you what, what actually happened, uh, which is my son Max, who actually at this very moment is uh, in Peru at the uh, centre that I went to. He had been for the first time and um, he came back, uh, flew back, and I picked him up from Heathrow. And I can still remember it. This was about uh, three years ago. What am I now? 77. So I was, yeah, it was about three years ago. And um, uh, we were driving back, and I um, looked across to him, and uh, I said, how was it? And he turned to me, and his eyes were just wonderfully bright and his energy was quite extraordinary. It was very, very clear. And he's an amazing being anyway, but he was, he was obviously in a, in, a, in a fantastic place. And he simply looked at me and he said, you have to do it. And he didn't tell me anything else. He just said, you have to do it. And I knew in that moment that he had connected with something in me that was uh, a sort of a deep knowing. And uh, he tunes into me pretty well, <laughs> and um, which sometimes is good, sometimes sometimes is is less less useful for me. <laughs> and uh, so I decided to do it at that moment. So if you like, it wasn't so much a rational process of you know deciding to do it. It was at that moment in my life that it was presented to me as a, a kind of uh, and this. I was going to apologise for how it may sound, but I won't do that. It was a sort of cosmic imperative. Mm. Does that does that at all answer your question? Yeah, completely. I mean, I always believe that it's a medicine that comes to us when we're ready for it. Um, so yeah, so I exactly. completely agree with everything that you just said. That's what happened to me as well. You know, just appeared when I was when I was ready for it and when I needed it. Yeah, and you've mm. certainly you certainly no need to apologise for utilising words like cosmic, cosmic and imperative, separately or together, because that's our vibe on the How to Die Happy oh, podcast good. show. Um, and I would I would echo what Jules says. I think the the medicine presents itself when you're ready. Naturally, if we live in England, for example, which is where you are, right, um, you have to be more open to the idea uh, than perhaps if you traveling around the world like like we do a little bit more of but um beautiful so so that's how you discovered it what happened next yep. i um i flew out to uh peru and i went to the uh the center where uh, my first interesting part of the experience was that the um uh, I couldn't understand a word that the, the shaman said. And that was because he was from North Shields. Yeah. And, Hang on, uh, North Shields is in not... He wasn't speaking Spanish. 
No, he, David, David is certainly not Spanish. Ah. No, David is from North Shields. Now, okay, well, so for, for our listeners, because we have a, we're, we're very fortunate to have an in, international listening base here. Oh, um, right. Uh, actually, a good chunk of which are in the US, right? Yeah, yeah. So could you just explain where North Shields is? Okay. Uh, North Shields is in the uh, northeast coast of uh, England. It's it's uh, either part of or close to a city called Newcastle. Mm -hmm. And it's a wonderful part of the country, but the, or not but, and the accent is a very strong one. Even for an English person, the, the, uh, the accent there can be quite impenetrable. So I, um, it took time for me to understand what uh, what Ch what David was saying but uh, fortunately um, I have an ear for accents so I managed to get through it but he was a lovely man who's he's probably David must be in his I would think late 30s early 40s who had done many years training as a shaman and um, uh, runs the most uh, beautiful very simple but beautiful uh, center where there are, I, he runs ayahuasca ceremonies. And um, I was also very blessed that I was the only person there. I mean, as, as it happened, people come and go, and sometimes there are groups of people, but I am uh, somewhat reclusive by nature. So to find that it was just myself with David and uh, a couple of uh, um, people who whom he was training us uh, to do shamanic work, I found that particularly um, comfortable and I found it very holding and very safe. So uh, I felt that the the universe had provided exactly, exactly the conditions I needed to get the most from it. Mm, you were very lucky in that regard because, of course, a lot of people, not necessarily just doing their first ceremony but um, doing any ceremony, will, will find that they're sharing the space with uh, anything from half a dozen to even 10, 15, 20 plus people. I know in, was this in the, I don't know the particular center you're referring to, is it in the um, Sacred Valley in Peru? Not not having studied the maps, uh, Martin, I can't answer that one. It's about, um, um, about 45 minutes bone-shaking ride in, in a little tuk-tuk from uh, the center of Iquitos. Ah, okay, right, not then. Yeah, of course. So uh, the Sacred Valley is nearer to Cusco. Ah, okay, well, yes, nevertheless, um, I know there are centres that, uh, that that pack them in sometimes and you've got quite a large number of people and then uh, the way they manage it is they have uh, a number of shaman and, and, and other uh, people assisting to hold space uh, around the whole circle. So, But it was just you and presumably a couple of trainee shaman then who would this wasn't this wasn't their first rodeo that's right this? and um it was uh i have since then i actually attended a ceremony in the uk and there were other people and i must say um i'm sure it's very different for everybody but uh for me it is um more comfortable, more rewarding to have that experience uh, without distractions. And uh, you can per perfectly reasonably say, okay, you know, do you, do you allow yourself to be distracted by what's going on around you or don't you? And uh, I guess I'm quite sensitive to what is going on around me. So 
to for me to have those experiences in Peru, um, sort of going solo, that that made it uh, particularly uh, comfortable. I mean, the environment was was perfect for me, and for other people, it may be very different. Mm. Well, as you say, everyone's journey is different, isn't it? Yeah, very different. And I think that sounds wonderful, having such an intimate ceremony. I think when I did my first ceremony, I was very fortunate because it was just down the road from where I lived. I didn't really have to travel anywhere. And I knew a lot of the people in the ceremony. Um, so there wasn't too many different energies around. But then this, I think it was my third one. There was a lot of energy to deal with. And I actually found it quite interfering in my journey. Um, but mm. yeah, I think obviously sometimes that can be down to yourself not being able to sure. manage the energies but also when you're in a ceremony like that you don't really want to be managing energies you want to just be diving deep in and and allowing the medicine to to take you on the journey so yeah to do exactly. a ceremony with a shaman and some trainees wow so uh, has david trained with the shipibo then was 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 he following the shipibo um ceremonial style and utilizing ikaros and that's that kind of thing, or has he has he developed his own style? I'm afraid I can't answer that question. Um, I I didn't I I didn't inquire as far as that was concerned. I really went marching on the this the um, the quality of my experience. So I I stayed there for eleven days, I think, and we we had four ceremonies, mm -hmm. uh, which were quite different in in nature the first one was very different from the from the the following ones but and i just found it such an amazing um and i'm going to use life changing and i mean that that is uh, i i don't i don't use those words lightly uh but it, it was such a powerful experience that in a way uh whatever david's background what what his training was i mean he did tell me a bit about it but I went, I relied much more on my connection with him. And I felt from the very beginning to I trusted him, which I think is very important in, the, in that, mm. that kind of environment. You need to be in a safe space and a place where you can absolutely trust uh, the shaman. And uh, I've instinctively very quickly felt trust in him, but also, you know, re referring back to that moment with my son in the car, the fact that he trusted the the that environment so completely and he was committing me to it in a way by by recommending to i went uh, right from the very beginning i had um i had no qualms no fears no reservations about it it was very much about trusting the process mm. and the universe had brought me that process at that time and um i mean because it came to me sort of late in life it's simply i'm an extremely slow learner mm -hmm. um a bear of very little brain so it takes time for me to be ready for these things you young people <laughs> i mean it's different you know? i don't know Come on. i'm not i'm not convinced i can be classed as a young person anymore keith and I, and, and just it's for the record i'm also a terribly slow learner i am i was uh 46 in november and actually my first ayahuasca journey was nearly three years ago no three years ago it would have been three years ago first of many um as it transpired and i similarly to you after the first journey was stunned 
Uh, and certainly, uh, to say life-changing from my perspective any, anyway would be an understatement. That journey and, and all of the journeys ever since have, have completely transformed my perspective on life, love, the universe, humanity, our place in the stars, uh, the concept of dimensions as opposed to you know, just discussing interstellar-ness, if that was a word. And um, yeah, wowzers. And and the, the I'm I'm very keen, and I'm going to ask you about this in a moment. But I'm I'm always very keen when I talk about ayahuasca. People often say to me, especially people who who know my story, because I was an addict. I was a, a an alcoholic and cocaine addict for many years. And uh, when and I'm I've been clean and sober. Actually, I'm coming up about it'll be four years in a week, I think, which is great. Um, wow. But when I tell people that story quite often, and this is, you know, it's, it's, it's ignorance, but not in an, an unple- not in an unpleasant way. It's just natural ignorance through, through not understanding this stuff. But a lot of people will say to me, wait, you, you, you were a, uh, an addict, you quit, you're sober, but, but you advocate doing drugs. And I'm very keen to, to sing from the rooftops whenever anyone asks me about ayahuasca and, and other DMT medicines to refer to them not as drugs. They are medicines. They're plant medicines. And for me, the use of ayahuasca uh, combined with um, a self-subscribed um, selection of uh, alternative healing modalities, such as yoga, breath work, sound healing, acupuncture, body work, you know, you name it. Um, I think I think ayahuasca was the right at the forefront of my healing journey, and uh, and I'm not the only person to to say that when it comes to using ayahuasca to treat lots of mental illnesses, including addiction. So, for our audience, would you mind just telling us a little bit about what you've been doing for a career prior to you? How old are you now, David? By the way, if you don't mind me asking. I'm 77. 77. So you are you retired or are you still you still doing your thing? No, I'm still uh, still working. I love uh, it as a psychotherapist and have been for 20 odd years. Just to just to to sort of go back a little, um, bearing in mind what you you just said about your own history, um, I I lived in Ibiza for 10 years. So that was from the age of uh, about, uh, what was I, something like 28, 29 to 38, 39, something like that. And so I was in a culture where there was a, a quite a lot of drug use. And um, that was what I'll call recreational. There was certainly, to my knowledge, no... Um, and this is going back to the 80s, of course, but there was no uh, therapeutic intent. No. And since I knew absolutely nothing about therapy, I probably wouldn't have recognized it even if there had been. But, but uh, it was, I, I'm pretty sure that it, it was simply for the experience. And I guess in that time, I tried all sorts of things. Uh, and, um, and I enjoyed them. I mean, the, the experience was fun and um, uh, always positive, but but never. It never affected me very deeply. I I, I never felt that I wanted to um, 
if I'd tried something and if somebody had said to me, well, you'll, you'll, you will never have it again, that would never have upset me. And um, so uh, it was enjoyable, but it was not particularly rewarding. There was no great depth to the experience. I would say a possible, possible exception of, of, uh, of LSD, which was, uh, which was pretty powerful. But um, it, I treated it, I treated all those experiences fairly lightly. I, I never saw any great significance in them. And it wasn't until I went to Peru that I realized, um, it, it, and it was a very powerful realization, that um, there was a huge, huge potential for using certainly ayahuasca. And since then, I, I've had uh, realized that uh, psilocybin also has huge potential. And I'm sure there are others, but certainly those two in my experience, a huge potential to be used in conjunction with conventional therapy and to help people um, uh, make progress in the, you know, along the sort of therapeutic journey, which is uh, um, far, far more rapid than can, can be achieved by talking, talking therapy alone. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of my friends have said when they've come out of a ceremony that for them it was a bit like doing 20 therapy sessions in one night, you know, and they've just seen it all. They've worked through so much stuff and, yeah, they've saved, I mean, save time. It's not about saving time, but they've managed to really get themselves to a, a point a lot faster than they would have done with the conventional, you know, going and having a chat every week. I, I, I think it's... Uh... I would say that the young, the the generation which which you represent, is also. Uh, I mean, my sense of that is that there is a, a a higher level of consciousness on the planet right now. So what worked for people of my generation was fine and going at a particular pace, but there is now it's as though there is um, uh, a. Um, again, a kind of imperative because of the higher level of consciousness on the planet that we find different ways of working. And I, I believe uh, fervently that, that uh, the, the um, responsible and ethical use of, of plants to be a part of that healing process, now is, now is the time. That my, my generation wasn't ready for it. Yeah, although I was, I suppose, because you, you, you're not old enough to have been hammering uh, LSD and, and DMT and, and psilocybin in the 60s are you well I was uh, I was in my teens in the in the 60s so I guess I was old enough but uh, nobody nobody gave me the chance it's it wasn't, around, you know wasn't on all your that radar. time wasted <laughs> I, I often say that I often think about all the decades I could have been I could have spent as a psychonaut uh, and sadly it's Ooh. only been three years but yeah because I was going to ask you about that obviously if, uh, you, you mentioned psilocybin, and we were talking about the '60s. There's a there's a really great documentary, a Netflix documentary called "Fantastic Fungi." I don't know if you've come across it, but if you haven't, uh, I recommend. Yeah, yeah. And anyone uh, watching and listening or listening hasn't, please do check it out because it's well worth it. it. Talks about the mycelial network, obviously, and the intelligence of these plants, but then it it, it rolls nicely into the psilocybin story and how. 
in the 60s, everyone was experimenting with LSD, with psilocybin. Um, I'm pretty sure the Beatles went off and did ayahuasca. Um, and I know, obviously, a, a number of other people were. Terence McKenna and his brother and buddies were all um, getting involved with DMT and ayahuasca. Um, but then what happened was, I, I don't... I, well, it depends who you believe, doesn't it? The narrative that we are led to believe is that, that, that people were using it irresponsibly, losing control, and a stop had to be put to it. But then you, you hear other people's perspective, and, and of course the debate is that consciousness was being expanded by these groups, of course, because utilising these plants and and the other spiritual practices that, that you tend to find yourself embracing as a result of working with these medicines means that you are more free. You feel more free. You feel, oh, I don't know, how do I put this? You see the matrix system that we all exist in for what it is. And uh, I, I suspect a great many people see the futility of it. Um, Anyway, I'm rambling, but I, I suppose the point is, in the 60s, a lot of people freed their minds and began to rebel against the system and against authority and against uh, a lot of these uh, matrix-like structures, constructs, social constructs that have been created. Did you experience any of that? No, I think my picture of it, uh, Martin, is being largely formed by... I've done a lot of research since I came back from Peru. I've watched a lot of documentaries uh, I and um, and you know also some docudramas actually um, relating to the the whole ayahuasca experience and plant healing generally and I've the book which has um, helped to inform me most uh, I think is Michael Pollan's book uh, I think it's how to change your mind mm. And the picture which he draws, which makes total sense to me, is that um, the authorities in in uh, in the states. It was towards the end of the Vietnam War, and um, you know a lot of young people were were using um, LSD, and they were as a result they were. Um, becoming uh, more independently minded and part of that independence was not seeing why they should be sent off to fight a, um, a, a, a pointless and bloody uh, war in in uh, in Vietnam and I and the authorities took took fright and there's a there's a great clip of Nixon's which comes up in a lot of the documentaries where he says the the number one enemy in uh, that America needs to be fighting at this time, um, I won't inflict my Nixon accent, on <laughs> it, uh, is uh, um, uh, the use of drugs. And so it, he, 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 he focused a lot of fear. I think there is huge fear around, I mean, the very, you know, the word drugs, nobody used the words drugs for prescription medicines, and yet they, they are potentially, you know... Drugs. Extremely dangerous and highly addictive. Absolutely. I've worked with with people addicted to them. So the word drugs itself is it's a sort of derogatory term, and uh, and remains so. And uh, so the the um, a lot of the uh, attention and energy of the of the authorities at the time, certainly in the states, 
were to uh, counteract the drug culture. And, um, and they brought huge, huge forces to it. And of course, as a result, a lot of the uh, legitimate research which was being done on the uh, therapeutic effects of uh, LSD, a lot of that was uh, halted and it's been very difficult to, uh, to pick it up again. And mm -hmm. that, to some extent, to some extent, still um, you know, obtains as far as the states are concerned, and of course the UK. Yeah, and they, well, the UK followed swiftly, didn't it? And uh, and yeah, you you put that very eloquently. I, I I suspect it was very much more to do with the fact that people suddenly felt free uh, and were a, a lot yep. more difficult to control. Um, and of course, that's terrifying for the governmental structure that we have the world the world over. So, as a psychotherapist. How, you were presumably were you familiar or were you aware at all that the likes of Johns Hopkins were doing this research with psilocybin and ketamine and MDMA and um, and DMT or has this only come onto your agenda onto your radar recently? I wasn't uh, following the development of uh, sort of plant plant the use of plant medicine or the research that was being done. But I was indirectly aware to some extent because, and again, this is not the therapeutic connection, but uh, both my sons are um, connected to the, um, the music world. Max, um, my older son, whom I've mentioned, uh, is an event organizer. So he... Uh, runs music events and other kind of events, but, but uh, with an accent on music. And he has his own uh, event, which I actually attended this year, which is kind of fun because I walked in and doubled the average age of the, uh, <laughs> of the uh, participants at the time. And it was just wonderful, you know, these wonderful young people suddenly saw a dinosaur walking around and they were, they were so lovely. <laughs> anyway, that's another story I which I could go on, go on about. So, so Max was, and in the music world, in the events world, there is um, a, um, a great deal of recreational substance use. And my other son, Sandy, is a, um, again, an, another ex extraordinary being who has both an online fashion business, but also he is a, uh, a DJ who works internationally. So he's done, you know, works all over Europe. He's done tours, of, d done a tour of Australia, another one coming up. Um, and so he is very successful in the music business. So he has an intimate connection again to that world. And mm. I knew from talking to them that there was a, a good deal of the use of substances, but not particularly um, in, in the, the, the therapeutic sense. So I was aware of the, how, how widely substances are used. And it was a small step once Max had opened my eyes to the fact that there was a thera could be a therapeutic content. Then immediately I, I could see, you know, the connection to, to my, my own world as a therapist and the possibility of, um, you know, 
integrating the use of plants uh, uh, of the traditional healing, you know, shamanic healing methods into that world. And that was that was a real eye opener. Mm. Well, I can imagine it was, especially after many, many, many years as a, a traditional psychotherapist. Yeah. But you are not alone, which is the um, the, the really positive side of this. I, I, I'm yeah, I've. I've been an, uh, an, um, an outspoken ambassador for the use of plant medicine ever since I discovered it because of all the reasons I've, I've just mentioned. It, 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 was, uh, it was utterly transformative for me and continues to be so. In fact, we hopefully will be returning to Peru and Brazil toward the end of the year. Um, all being well, it'll be to, to produce a documentary on this very subject. Um, but can't really talk about that at this stage because it's highly speculative needless to say it'll be heroic if we manage to pull it off have you heard of Gabor Mate oh yes I'm a huge admirer of his yeah well he I think it's safe to say has been a trailblazer in in this space and, uh, and uh, we've talked about him on the show before uh, but for anyone new to the show Gabor Mate is a uh, Vancouver-based Hungarian psychotherapist who specialises in addiction therapy, and um, wow, I mean, I think he's the he's the very definition of compassion, um, at least from what I can see. And I've I've read much of his work and and watched many of the things that he's been involved with, including documentaries. But of course, he deals with addiction uh, in a in a different way. He approaches it from as a trauma-informed therapist. And sorry, we have a gecko in the ceiling here. <laughs> Welcome to Bali. They're quite loud. Um, so he's a trauma-informed therapy and a therapist, and he does an awful lot of work with uh, plant medicines, and he, he, does, he does actually do regular retreats in the Sacred Valley in Peru to do the, to do the same thing, to treat people um, uh, with well with addiction because of course he sees he sees addiction the way hopefully more psychotherapists and, and mental health professionals are seeing addiction these days and that is as a symptom of something else and uh, pharmaceuticals and you know perhaps five years ten years of of uh, of speech therapy might not get to the bottom of, of the or the root cause of those trauma, and of course you'll know firsthand. Although I'd like to think you yeah you you, you have some quicker wins than ten years, but it, but it is a common expression to say that uh, an ayahuasca journey, one ayahuasca journey, is like ten years of therapy. And certainly from my perspective, it was uh, I'd I'd had I don't know maybe three years of therapy, something like that in total. And it, it absolutely topped that and more because of what the medicine did for me in that experience, essentially representing moments from my life, uh, trauma, if you like. Not always trauma for me either, uh, situations where I'd mistreated other people. And it represented the, the event in an entirely new way. So I wasn't just seeing my perspective anymore. I saw and felt the other person's perspective. Not only that, if there was a dog nearby, it appeared that I was also picking up any other perspective of any person or any living entity, the universe, let's just say. So I wasn't getting a 360-degree perspective. It was more like a 4K perspective 
of my behavior, of the event, of their behavior, and so on and so forth. And I can't rightly explain it, but through that process, I was able to see the event for what it was, forgive myself, forgive them if it was a, an, if it was a situation where I'd, I'd been wronged by this person, and, and just put it away, just let it go. No, not put it away. That's a good point. It wasn't about putting it back. It was about letting it go. So it was astounding from my perspective. So, yeah, so Gabo Marte is leading the way, isn't he? And um, so I wondered how, how are you integrating this into the way you interact now with, with your patients or clients? Do you call them patients or clients? Call them clients. Yeah. Patience uh, is a bit of a formal, formal way to refer to people, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, apologies. There's something really scary about introducing something which is going to put all psychotherapists out of business pretty quickly. <laughs> I mean, I guess I should be, I should be a, a huge uh, uh, opponent of uh, anything like these substances that young people are using and solving all their problems when they should be coming and talking to me so I don't pay my mortgage. What? Um, you make a good point. You can you can edit that out, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's uh, uh, it is it is very difficult because all the substances, apart from ketamine, which is there's a, a loophole because you're probably aware that, uh, or you may not be, that uh, ketamine in this country and in the states actually is um, because it's a prescribed drug. It's a pre-med. And so it is not on the list of banned substances. It's mm. not a Schedule A drug, as both um, uh, LSD and uh, ayahuasca and heroin are all, all on the same list. I mean, it's extraordinary. But they are all Schedule A drugs in, in, in the UK. So they are illegal. So there is no way that I could legally integrate the use of any of those substances into my practice. Um, I guess, uh, I mean, I, I would not be interested in doing so, but I guess that I could seek to become involved with uh, an organization. Uh, there is one in the UK, to my knowledge, there may be more, who are legally using uh, ketamine for the, uh, um, in, the, in the therapeutic context. And I know I was Zooming actually yesterday with a friend of mine in Los Angeles who is a therapist and he has, uh, he is, um, he has paid to be part of a program which is using ketamine and the whole thing is done remotely. You're sent the substance. There's a lot of support from uh, psychiatrists and um, psychologists to, to take you through the whole um, uh, process and there are, I think he has six um, he will have yeah six um, sessions with with ketamine which is adjusted according to his his response to them so that that is legal in some states I understand but not necessarily all in the United States mm. in the UK it, that's different uh, ketamine is used but um, under very very strictly controlled conditions i think in one clinic in one city to my knowledge there may i may not be entirely accurate on that but from a personal point of view i cannot although i would love to 
integrate into my practice the use of something like psilocybin. Mm -hmm. But it's illegal, so I would be running huge risks by doing so. And um, it is just, uh, it is, it is just not not possible to 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 do that. But if my my wish, my hope would be that very soon the uh, limitations which are placed on the use, particularly of psilocybin. I mean, I I do feel that psilocybin is uh, very different in in. Uh, in in the nature of the experience from uh, ayahuasca, and and that's also certainly my that's my experience. But I think that would be the case for most people. And psilocybin, I think, probably because of the nature of the experience, is probably more widely uh, um, lends itself to wider use than ayahuasca. And yeah. um, uh, again, so much depends on the individual, but. Although I would love to be able to integrate them, either of them, into my practice, it simply is not possible to do so without um, huge professional risk. And I think, though, at the at the moment, it looks like these that is slowly changing. Um, there's a lot of policies up for review, especially around psilocybin. Um, and I know, actually, I think it was in October, Boris Johnson actually said that he was going to examine all the latest advice on the legalization of psilocybin for therapeutic uses. And it's the same with a lot of um, a lot of the states. They're gradually re-looking at, at especially psilocybin and how it can be used and how it can be legalized for therapy, um, which I think is wonderful. It is. And, and actually, uh, well, setting aside the fact that we can't trust the word that Boris Johnson says, mm. uh, unless yeah. you believe he didn't have a Christmas party, uh, in the United States now, I think it was maybe three weeks ago, the thirteenth city, uh, the thirteenth American city, decriminalized psychedelics. So there is now a huge push, certainly in the U.S., to decriminalize nationwide uh, and introduce the use of psychedelics for therapeutic purposes. Of course, how that works, how it's rolled out, I have no idea. Honestly, I have huge fears about it as well. Um, If I'm going to be brutally honest, it's no coincidence that governments have have not just criminalised, but absolutely demonised these medicines and demonised the use of them and demonised the people who use them. Uh, suddenly when big farmers invested in uh, a load of development to synthesize uh, DMT and synthesize um, and synthesize uh, psilocybin into small pills, suddenly we have governments supporting it. Anyway, moving on from that, the, the point is, I'm, I'm, I'm re- on the one hand, I'm really happy about that because it means that the wider world is going to have access to these medicines that I've only been using for a, a few years for my mental health and it completely changed my mental health, completely and utterly fixed me is the best way to put it. Uh, but of course, for thousands of years, other people have been using these medicines without any without any problem. And I suppose that's where the concern lies because if you look at, I think that actually the biggest killer in the United States now is fentanyl, isn't it? Uh, that's actually the real pandemic is is this fentanyl uh, which is uh, available on the black market. 
and they've got a real, real problem with it. And I suppose my huge concern with synthesizing psychedelics, putting them into a tiny pill, is what happens when the black market in, in pharmaceutical psychedelics explodes. Because you rightly, uh, you made a, a, a really, really crucial point at the beginning of this conversation, Keith, and that is, and I, and I will say this any time on this podcast that, that I'm, we're talking about psychedelics, it is absolutely crucial that if you are going to work with psychedelics, you must be in the right place with mm. the right people and with the right guide. Uh, the expression is set and setting, and you'll hear it frequently. You'll hear me say it all the time. You can walk around the streets of Cuzco as a, a solo tourist, as I have, and people will walk up to you on the street and offer you a, a bottle of ayahuasca. Really? It's absolutely insane. And, of course, these, these, these people who, who don't know any different are just buying an, a huge bottle of ayahuasca, taking it home to, or taking it to the bedsit or the hotel they're staying in, probably mixing it with alcohol, probably mixing it with other narcotics and so on and so forth. And, of course, having pretty awful experiences. So, so I, I'm really, you know, I don't want to be a downer on it because I'm, I'm with you, Keith. I'm like, yes! Therapeutic treatment for all. And let's face it, a laser-cut key into therapeutic treatment. This is, this is going to change the world of, of uh, mental um, health treatment forever. Yeah. You know, there's no two ways about it. And you're either going to be on the right side of it or the wrong side of it. But at the same time as, um, as, as I'm excited, I'm, I'm also terrified for what could happen if people just start buying the, these things on the street. What's your opinion of that? It's interesting. I share a lot of your fears, but the uh, Zoom yesterday, which I, I mentioned, uh, did go some way to reassuring me. So let me just give you a little more detail. This is uh, the friend of mine who's on this ketamine program is a... Um, uh, psychotherapist himself works uh, a lot with uh, trauma with young people. And he had had uh, um, his first experience of uh, was with psilocybin quite recently as far as uh, sort of plant, plant medicine was concerned. And when he said he was going on to this ketamine program, I was very interested because I have a lot of fears. Um, Partly that once it, once any of these uh, substances become uh, available widely, that uh, the people who come in are the men in white coats, the men in suits, and the men who are looking to make money. Mm. And the magic is lost. And I am a huge believer in, in, in magic. And there is also, I was worried that the, the spiritual dimension, and again, to me, that is an absolutely crucial dimension in the use of these substances. Mm. And I felt that that would be at risk. So I quizzed my friend on, who is now about three weeks into the program about how it was set up. And it was very interesting, Martin. The company which is supplying the ketamine and has put this program together is the brainchild of a young man who had for years suffered from very serious depression. And he had gone through all the convention, down all the conventional routes, 
and had had no success in in uh, ameliorating his condition mm. until he tried, uh, I think it was ayahuasca, in fact. He then realized that, and that transformed his condition. And he then made it his, he, it, it became a, a dream of his to make that kind of healing available to other people because of his personal experience. So the, 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 the whole intention behind his company is to bring that uh, healing to people uh, in the environment of the market. Mm. So he has made these uh, the uh, the ketamine available. He the and uh, not only made it available, but the backup. I quizzed my friend closely, and as I say, his psychotherapist himself, and which of course gives him huge amounts of wisdom and knowledge. And I mean, I need hardly tell you what wonderful people psychotherapists are. But his <laughs> his. Uh, <laughs> His, uh, and he said the backup in terms of the, the care and the uh, understanding and the wisdom and the insight of the, the people who were providing the backup. So not only the, the, the uh, very careful checks that were done on his, um, his condition before they accepted him onto the program, he said that was rigorous. During the program, they're very careful on making sure that there are people available, both during the, the uh, ketamine experience, which actually apparently is a very short one, it's about an hour, but then there is always somebody uh, online available in case uh, there are adverse uh, reactions and so on. And he said he feels very held, he feels that the quality of the, the backup is, is very good. And I thought, okay, it is, it's my fears about this all falling into the hands of people who just want to make money, like your people in the streets of Cusco. And I experienced this in Cusco. Mm. <laughs> you can get anything on the street. You can. And, and that is dangerous. And that is, uh, you know, that creates a, a risk for anybody who is unwise enough to go down that route. But it is possible. And my, the program my friend is on at the moment reminded me that actually there can be people uh, who are running these programs who are, are uh, who have integrity and who have honest and and clear and clean intention and so there will be cowboys of course there will be people who don't respect it there will be people who are just in there for the money that is unavoidable mm. that's but good to know it's about though. encouraging people to to check very carefully you know the the uh, any organisation, any company that they get that they are planning to work with, and it's down to taking responsibility for that. Mm. And so it's um, my fears were allayed to quite an extent yet by that conversation I had yesterday. As I say, it doesn't take away all the risk; it never will. But uh, it is possible for it to be done in integrity and to be done. And he said he is finding it really valuable. And, and as you said, you've always got to do the research yourself because even if you go to Cusco or you go to the Amazon, there's a lot of cowboy people out there calling themselves shamans, you know. So yep. whether you take the approach to go 
into the more traditional route of plant medicines or you want to work with a psychotherapist because both have such great merits you you have to really take responsibility for yourself and and make sure that you're working with somebody that you have, has been recommended to you that you have researched and that you're happy to work with i think that's that's that that is huge yes and as you were speaking um i just recommend there's a a, a beautiful it, it's it's uh, sort of a reconstruction of, of, of one man's experience called The Last Shaman. I don't know whether you've come across that, but it's on Netflix. And it follows a young man, uh, an American, who go goes to Peru and is, is then involves himself in looking for the right person to work with and uh, uh, has some, some real trials around that. But it's beautifully done. Mm. And uh, as I say, it's uh, the last shaman, and I would really recommend it. And it does, it sort of, it, it reminds people that they need to um, pay close attention to what they're doing uh, in, this, uh, uh, in this sphere and to uh, really take responsibility and to um, be absolutely sure that, uh, that they can trust whoever they're working with. Yeah. When you did your first journey, how much fear did you have based on the societal and media programming that we all receive around these around psychedelics? On a scale of naught to a hundred, about naught. <laughs> wow. Okay. I mean, I, I mean, again, it it that that may sound uh, a bit flip, but. Um, I, I have to come back to that moment. I looked into my son's eyes and he just said, you, this is for you. And it's as though, it was as though, um, okay, my guide, my guardian angel was speaking through him. It was not just, you'll enjoy this or you'll get a hit out of this. or you, This was, this is for you. And so when I went in, I was much more worried about whether I was going to lose my luggage on the connecting flight from uh, uh, from Lima to Iquitos. That was that was that I was worried about, and I had to get into had to turn to my to my travel angels and say, for God's sake, get please please get my bags there, you know, because I, I don't want I want changes of underwear when I when I'm when I'm on this uh, this uh, life changing experience. I want to have clean socks. <laughs> and um, but no, it didn't. It had absolute. Remember, remember my age also. I mean, I've been, I've been kind of around the mill, uh, around the block. I've had a you know an interesting life, a lot of interesting experiences. Um, as I say, lived in Ibiza for for a long time, and um, also, um, in a way. I just absolutely knew that if I had been guided to go there at that time for that experience, those beings who look after me have never let me down. They put mm. me through some or invited me to to be part of some very, very challenging and sometimes painful and traumatic experiences. But always, always, always they've been taking me along my my path, and I just knew that this was this was no different. Mm. And I'd just like, to, if I may, just to go on about the first. When you said, you know, did you have any fear? And it, it's interesting. When in my first 
Uh, it's okay if I just go on a little about the first ceremony. But of course, yeah, you, uh, I'd, I'd love for you to but, share whatever you're comfortable sharing. Yeah, it's because it's it's part of the answer to your question, actually. So at the at the conscious level, at the conscious level, I had absolutely no fears, no reservations, um, and when I went into the first ceremony. I was immediately uncomfortable. Uh, not only the taste of the ayahuasca, which I, I, I cannot, I mean, you guys have experienced it. Very I cannot, cannot many times. To begin to describe, describe it, so I, I won't even try. It's, it's unpleasant. But it uh, Unpleasant, unpleasant doesn't begin to cover it. Uh, we, would, we would need language which I'm sure would offend the, uh, the sensitive ears of a lot of the listeners to your, your highly, highly respected podcast. So I won't. Anyway. I mean, if I was Irish, I'd say taste like shite. Make shite, make shite taste, taste good. I, I think that would be a, that would be an accurate representation. I've done um, I've done over I've done around a dozen ceremonies now, and I still cannot get used to the the taste. Oh, the thought of it just makes my you? stomach flutter and my body shudder. Yeah, yeah. It's hard. In call. that case, you wait, you wait, you wait till you try mescaline if you think that's bad. Well, I, I'm uh, assuming anyway. mescaline's quite similar to uh, San Pedro because it's a cactus, isn't it? And uh, I've done my fair share of San Pedro yeah. as well, which is uh, Wachuma, which is also DMT. But anyway, let's move on to uh, yeah. to your first experience. Okay, so I. My first, I was, uh, although, as I say, the, my rational mind, my logical mind, my left brain was, uh, there, was there were no worries. But uh, during the ceremony, I became increasingly uncomfortable about pretty well everything. I mean, I was lying on a, a thin, uh, on a rug on, on, the, uh, on the floor, on the ground. And it was uncomfortable. And then uh, part of the ceremony, and I, I knew nothing about what happened, was the chanting. And I found the chanting was, was very loud. And uh, then there were gongs, um, which were extremely loud, so loud that, that they were painful to my ears. And the whole experience at the physical level became overwhelming. All my senses were overwhelmed. And um, of course, the, the, uh, and then the, the smell of the, of the, uh, the smoke was, uh, made me uh, nauseous. Was that the, uh, and, the sage or the Palo Santo? Yeah, it does that, doesn't it? Yeah, I can't can't remember what it what was. I kept asking what what was the smoke called, and I was told and could never remember for more than two minutes. But so increasingly, I was becoming uncomfortable. Then that was heightened by the fact that I wanted somebody to tell me what was happening, and nobody told me what was happening. So I then became angry, angry that nobody was looking after me, nobody was inquiring about my well-being, nobody was seeing whether I was comfortable, nobody was offering me another, a rug to put over me in case I was cold. So I was feeling extremely, increasingly 
and, and of course the 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 ceremony goes on for quite a long time mm. but in i was my my discomfort and anger was rising to a crescendo now uh, and i was i was angry with david that he was he was not caring for my well-being there was a whole there was a huge cauldron inside me of anger with the way i was being treated mm. so at the end but i realized a part of me realized wait a minute this is what you need to experience and then another part of me said the hell with that i don't blood i do not need this this is this is uh, i am i am not being i'm not being respected as a human being i mean so it was it was a very powerful emotional experience and at the end of the the ceremony when when the effects were wearing off i remember david came around to to talk to ask me how i was uh, now he said you uh, he i think he said are you all right right at the end and i used some pretty strong language which again i'm not going to repeat on your on your podcast but i i swore at him and i said you know no i'm you know no absolutely i'm bloody well not and much stronger than that <laughs> and and i realized that i needed to for some reason which at that moment at that moment i didn't understand but i knew that there was a therapeutic content to what i'd gone through mm. yes there's you you mentioned uh uh, the grandmother, or I see her as the as the mother. I don't know if she'd take kindly to being seen as a grandmother. Actually, well, where um, where but, she's from, um, time is just a construct. <laughs> <laughs> my last my last ceremony. Uh, so I'd done the the first one, and then after that, I was just as I say in an ecstatic state. And the the third uh, of the uh, three remaining ceremonies. Uh, she brought me back, or I found myself in my sitting room, which is where I see my clients. And uh, she was wearing a, the most beautiful, beautiful blue, shiny blue dress. And that was um, nothing to do with my fetish for shiny blue dresses. <laughs> it was to do with a um, um, fa fabulous uh, butterfly, which I had seen. And I believe that they're, they're quite common in Peru. And they they have um, uh, they are a, a brilliant blue color, and so the mother ayahuasca's dress was the the color of the the butterfly, and she was whirling round, she was whirling round the room where I where I see my clients, and I realized that she was cleansing the space, she was actually cleansing the space in which I work, and she was whirling round, and it was just breathtaking. She was. There was light all around her, and uh, it was it was a beautiful experience. It was so beautiful, I was in tears because I just thought, how what a lovely, what a lovely gesture, what a lovely gift for her to clean where I work. And I, I, I then I then had the thought, hey, wait a minute, wouldn't it be lovely if she did the whole house? And then <laughs> I thought, come on, you can't ask a goddess to go around and clean your bloody house. Come on, be serious. You know, she's a goddess. You know, you just can't do this. You know, just get real. And I thought, well, you know, the worst she can do is say no. 
So I, I sort of very reverentially, I said, do you mind slipping around the rest of the house and just doing the cleaning thing? An energetic and, cleanse. And uh, so without a word, she just swept off into the rest of the house and I was trailing around her. And it was absolutely beautiful. I mean, I felt that all any negativity, anything which I wanted to get rid of, she was, she was cleaning away. And certainly the work that I did when I came back and many aspects of my life were, were, were transformed. And I could feel one of the things was that um, she's quite uncompromising, mm. I would say. That was my experience of her, you know, whereas in therapy is often seen as being sort of holding and gentle and caring and loving and all that stuff. And for me, this is kick-ass therapy. Yeah. I mean, she just she just expects you to do things. And uh, uh, I found that I was becoming much more forthright in the interventions, the things which I would have hesitated to say and hesitated to reflect to people, which I didn't have the courage to. Once I had had that experience, I had more courage and was more forthright, and that really showed in my, in my work. And in that context, you have to be careful, Martin, because whenever you ask me anything, I will talk talk for hours because <laughs> I, I sort of see patterns. And I have to tell you, at that time, I was playing a lot of tennis, and I decided to, uh, to have a tennis coach, and I saw him once a week. And when I came back, the f just after I'd come back from Peru, I had two or three days after, I had a session. And after about 15 minutes, he said to me, Keith, what is happening? What has happened? You are, your whole game is transformed. And I was playing everything off the front foot. I was playing everything without fear. And I, it was just so exciting because that was part of me, but I'd been controlled. You mentioned the word, you know, control. I had been fearful about expressing myself fully. And I just had the joy of expressing myself fully on the tennis court, in my life, in my work. And that was really uh, a sort of hallmark of the experience. But, um, yeah. That is beautiful. And, and it's a quite a, common, it's quite a common thing, I think. People, uh, hang on one second. Dogs, we're making a podcast. Sorry, Atti and Muda are behind the sofa. They're fed up with the sound of my voice. I get the same thing with my cat. They just are restless, always restless. Witching There's one hour. down here on the camera. Anyway, it is witching hour. But um, so many people come away from their ayahuasca experience saying similar things. Not that they got better at tennis, <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but certainly that they got better at dogs, that they got better at life. And... Um, I don't know about you. Obviously, you've been a psychotherapist for a long, long time. So you, you, you've been, you're a healer. And as a result, well, certainly my perspective of, of, of doing that job day in, day out, is that you are, you are in service of others and, and, in, and in a wonderful way, if I might add. Did you feel after your, after your retreat, when you came back, did you have a, a more sense of an intrinsic more intrinsic connection to everyone was there more love in your heart um that's an interesting one um 
I kind of struggle because of that birth experience. I think I've always had a struggle with feeling connection. I mean, at the at the part of me, part of my consciousness says I totally embrace that, and I do feel a, a, a connection to others and to the to the to everything that exists. I mean, to the. I'm surrounded by plants and I have a cat and and you know they are all living living beings and I can uh, one part of me completely accepts my and and glories in my connection uh, including to your dogs actually <laughs> you can have them and, I'll ship um, them in about 10 minutes <laughs> No 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 they they might not they might not appreciate that but oh, but to really you know, do I really, do I feel it in the depths of my heart? I think my heart is where I struggle, Martin. Mm. My, my heart, I'm still, I'm still fearful of allowing that connection um, at, a, at an emotional level, at a spiritual level. I, I can absolutely make that connection, just as with every client with every client I've ever worked with. I can see the absolute beauty of their souls and their beings. Um, but uh, because I am more comfortable at the, in the spiritual dimension. Yeah, that's probably the best way to put it. I'm more comfortable in the spiritual dimension than I am in the emotional dimension. Mm. And so, um, yeah, yeah, does that, does that, does that make sense? It does. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. And yeah. thanks for your candor. I, I think, as we mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, everyone has a very different experience with this, these medicines. I think there, there is, there are, there's a series of things that happens to all of us. I, I think, as you said, uh, first time you do ayahuasca, you are presented some of the deepest, darkest things that have happened in your life. That's a fact. That happens to everyone. And of course... If, you're, if you live in a state of fear anyway, or ego's very, very strong for you, then, then that alone could be enough to put you off doing this. But, <clears throat> excuse me, but then there are lots of other things that it does uh, to, to different people. And, and it depends on, it obviously depends on, on our life experience, doesn't it? It depends on the journey. Uh, some of us may have been fortunate enough to, to only have had minor traumas. Some of us might have, have grown up uh, in, a, in a, a hideous family arrangement from from day dot either way one thing you do know is well whatever that thing is however deeply buried it is under the subconscious unconscious it's coming out mm. yeah. <laughs> it's coming out it's gonna get a dust you cannot hide no you can't can no. you and um and if you are able to fully surrender to that process then absolute transformation happens mm -hmm. it's funny you should say you know you were talking about that sense of resistance we've talked about resistance when i the first time i ever did ayahuasca it was a particularly strong uh medicine incredibly strong medicine and i for a long time i was i was in the you know the sacred geometry space with the with the rainbow colors and the you know the fractals and this amazing imagery but I, I was so sort of lost in this loop of it that I kept saying, it's not working. This medicine is not working. When, when am I actually going to go on this journey? When am I going to go on this journey? 
it's not working. It's not working. When am I going to go on this journey? And I, and I realized suddenly I was stuck in a loop. And, you, you know, many people who have worked with ayahuasca will know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you find yourself in a loop. Uh, and there are lots of concepts as to what, uh, why that is. Personally, I believe you're, you're stuck between places and you can't, because the body's holding on, ego's holding on, you're not able to let go fully yeah. and... Well, often, I, for me, I believe it's because there's something you're not learning or there's something that you're not seeing. So you keep going back mm. through that loop, which we do in life as well. You'll yeah. notice your life has those loops. And then eventually, ah, it's almost like playing a game, isn't it? It's like, ah, there's the key. I can see it now. There it is. And then yeah. you, you, you get that, you get your points, and you're allowed to move on to the next. Then you're off to the next one. The next level. Yeah, or the next dimension, mm-hmm. depending on your perspective, of course. Um, I'm conscious... We've been enjoying this conversation so much, we've neglected to play uh, or to share the questions from the audience. So as you know, we have a segment on the show uh, called Be My Guest. And most of the time, we have people send questions in. And we have two questions for you from a listener. So I'm going to play one, and then let's listen. Be my guest. Let's talk, my friend. Let's talk, my friend. This is not the end. You are free. Hi, Keith. Thanks so much for being on the show and sharing your wisdom with all of us. I have two questions, and the first one is, throughout your experience with ayahuasca so far, what has been your most profound takeaways, and were there any insights that have changed how you go about your daily life going forward after? Great question. I suppose rolling on from the things you've already shared, what have you got? I think uh, it is it is a good question. Um, I think probably the main thing that I've taken away is um, going back to that example of the tennis about that I found myself on the front foot, and I think I'm I, I, not. I think I know that I am more ready to be. Uh, braver to show more courage in the way that I approach things. Uh, so that's the way that I interact with people, and uh, not only personally but also professionally. There's a I am there is less fear. I th- I think that's it. Yeah, that I that the ayahuasca experience took me back to a place of extreme fear and helped to show me. That it is that fear is just fear, mm. and it is uh, about moving into a state of trust and allowing ourselves. Well, no, I'll stay with me. Allowing myself to be more authentic and uh, to respond uh, without um, anticipating sort of a negative response and and worrying about it just to be who I am and to trust that other people will deal with that in the way that they deal with it so I hope that answers your question I think it's about the taking the removal of a great deal of fear and that was a or has been and is a huge gift from the ayahuasca experience I would say that's a beautiful gift of you if you if we all consider for a moment how fearful we can be and how certainly looking at the last two years 
what's happened to the world, how fear can drive uh, can drive a, a lot of negativity. What's, what was your big takeaway from ayahuasca, your first experience? My first experience? Mm. Mm, I think it was just it was just that reminder for me of, of staying connected to love and gratitude. That's always been a big one with me in ayahuasca. You know, I always come out of the ceremony. I'm always exhausted. <laughs> um, but I always just have this constant reminder to everything I interact with, everything I touch, everything I look at to offer love and gratitude, but in such a deep way that it's you're really feeling it right at your core. Mm, gratitude. Mm. I think well I got <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry. I, I I have to have to come in here and just interrupt you. And this will be completely lost on the people listening to the podcast because they can't see you. But right now, uh you are holding hands. And that is just beautiful. There is just that lovely connection. It makes it, you know, there are two beings with a uh, a really beautiful connection and I'm able to witness that and that energy comes across in what you do. So uh, I just would like to reflect that to you and how beautiful and heart connected that is. Thank you, Keith. That's Thank very you. kind of you to say. Um, Good. It was my well. I, I I can't possibly explain all the things that happened in my first ayahuasca journey because it was ridiculous. But I would say one of the key messages I received from the grandmother was, "Take better care of your Earth Rover." Mm. Now, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, the Earth Rover is is the um, the name I have for my body, and having spent 20 years hard drinking, t- uh, taking a lot of drugs, smoking cigarettes, fighting being hit uh, I was I went into that into that ceremony with a number of injuries and I'd been blinded um, actually rather recently by someone well uh, I'd been blinded in 2015 in a, um, a sucker punch this chap assaulted me and then I had, I had to have two surgeries and I can't remember yeah I just had I got cataract and my the lens of my the lens of my left eye had collapsed inside my eyeball so they had to get inside the eye and mm. take the lens out and I'd I think I'd had the surgery maybe uh, a few weeks before so I couldn't see and uh, I'd injured my knee in a in a drinking incident the year before it was really bad really bad uh, drinking incident and and my knee was still causing me loads of problems and I've got a shoulder that pops out here because that was a drinking um, snowboarding incident again so I just got this huge hug from uh, the grandmother ayahuasca and uh, and and a lot of healing attending to my body it's, I, it's difficult to explain almost energetic ethereal surgery and this message just you must take care of the, the earth rover you've got to take care of the body because you've, you've got lots more to do and lots more to give but you can't if you <laughs> If you smash that, if you smash up your spacesuit. <laughs> so that was it. Um, thanks for that wonderful question. We have a second question from the same person. And my second question is, do you have any advice for someone who is considering ayahuasca for the first time? Thanks. Another great question. Mm-hmm. It is indeed. Yeah, I, I guess to... Um, to talk to, to, to do your research, I think just to, um, there is such a lot out there which is really, really valuable. Um, and I would, 
I've mentioned it right at the beginning, and I mention it again. Michael Pollan's book, uh, which I I think is is a very uh, very well written and very clear and very honest and very informative and very balanced uh, view of um, the the whole um, area of of the of the using plant plant medicines, uh, including ayahuasca. And so I would encourage you to talk to people who have had the experience and to um, uh, maybe, you know, read, read the books. There are a lot of good things on YouTube, um, including Michael Pollan does, uh, has some YouTube uh, um, uh, videos up. So I would encourage you to, to find out about it and then to... Um, uh, so that you are able to enter it if you decide to go ahead then uh, to do it uh, with clear intention mm. i i think that holding clear intention is is hugely important it's as though you you are focusing your consciousness on whatever you you feel you want to deal with and having done that paradoxically to let go all attachment to uh, going along any paths that you are expecting or anticipating or hoping for, to trust the process, to trust the, um, the mother or the grandmother to take you on the journey that you need. And that may sound a bit airy-fairy, but it's the best I can do to articulate the, um, the approach which I would, would recommend. It is about entering with trust. Mm, no, that's good advice. Very good. What would your advice be? Well, adding to well, actually, just another uh, another book or and documentary I always recommend to people is DMT: The Spirit Molecule, which is by Dr. Rick Strauss. I think it's quite an old documentary now, but certainly very much worth watching. But uh, adding to to what Keith said, I would r repeat what I said earlier. First and foremost. Once you've made that conscious decision to to do this, uh, make sure you know where you're going to do it and with whom. That's so important. Like this is where people get it so wrong. If you go, if you if you don't get the right set and setting, and you get the wrong guide, you are entirely likely to have an, an, an incredibly bad experience. And as people say, the word trip, bad trip. You know, I don't like to use the word trip. It's a journey. Uh, trip implies it's um, there's something flippant about this. For me, it's the antithesis of flippancy. Actually, if you engage in, in, in committing to do this work, to do this journey, I can absolutely categorically guarantee you it's the best gift you will ever give yourself in your whole life until you do the next one. <laughs> um, but it, with that becomes gravitas you know comes you you must take it seriously and um so there are other basic things like make sure you do a, a dieta if you can stay away from alcohol caffeine um salt sugar chili meat the whole list that uh, that you'd be given for at least a fortnight um cleanse the body because what the medicine does while it's in there is it does give you a a serious cleanse and one of the things that people are terrified about when they hear about ayahuasca of course is oh aren't you sick all the time yes it's called purging and um some people are fortunate to not purge 
my first two ayahuasca journeys, I didn't purge at all. Um, some people purge like there's no tomorrow. And <laughs> but it can be, it's beneficial to purge. It is it's beneficial. Not, it's, not a, it's not a negative to purge no. or a negative to not purge. No, it's, it's essentially, well, how could I explain this simply? From my perspective, purging is your body ejecting. It's not because the medicine's making you sick. The medicine is, is enabling your body to eject negative energy, uh, toxicity, blocked energy. That's the whole part of this process is to unblock trauma. And what is blocked trauma? Well, it's, it's emotion. It's energy in motion. But of course, it's not in motion because it's stuck. Uh, and there are lots of studies being done to discuss somatic um, storage of trauma, which um, we've we've discussed on other podcasts, and I'm sure we could do again. So yeah, that would be my main advice. Um, uh, but you know, there are serious sides to this whole thing. It is a serious business, but I have to tell you, just uh, echoing what Keith already said, he had an an absolutely a heart opening experience, and most people do on their first. Uh, journey it is the best gift you could give yourself what about you um i think i would say let go of any expectations because yes i i do agree with talking to people about their experiences but actually sometimes i think that can um often put a lot into your mind and then you expect a similar thing in your journey um, so I think, yeah, let go of all, exp- all expectations and go into it with a completely open mind and an open heart. Um, let go as much as you can. Like allow, allow yourself to just let go of the resistance. And for me, an important part is after, after the journey to really connect back in with nature and I like to journal because I think so much happens during the, the ceremony that sometimes writing it down or, or talking it out loud is very, very beneficial. And then that's when you can start working on the integration because it's all very well going through this process and having these incredible insights and working through things. But we, if we don't integrate it, then actually we kind of, in a sense, I feel that work over time kind of slips away. And we do forget a lot of it, you know, and that's often why we go back and, and we'll repeat a ceremony so that, that we remember again. But actually, I imagine that's why psychotherapy comes so well into this, because mm. actually you're dealing with so much. To have a professional to talk to about it and to guide you through the process, either before, I don't know if it works during, but after... That's surely the best integration that you can have. It is. I think. I, I, I would totally agree. And, and actually this um, project that we want to do in Brazil will, in, will integrate ayahuasca medicine and psychotherapy. So I'm very excited to talk more about that as, as it develops. Because, uh, well, what's your, what's your view, Keith? Have, have, you, have you been speaking to people in the, the, your fraternity about this? Have you, are you talking to, to fellow psychotherapists now saying, hey, guys, i got something new to talk about? And if so, how's it being received? Just going, going back to what you said about integrating, uh, my first thought after my own experience was that is what I want to do. That is the role that I want to do. I want to find people who are, um, uh, whose expertise is in running the ceremonies, the, the shamans, and to work with them uh, so that if people uh, need to 
uh, integrate the experience afterwards, that I can bring my my therapeutic uh, or my experience as a therapist to bear because I realized that I, I got a huge amount out of the, the experience because I was able to do my own integration process because I could bring my all my experience as a therapist to bear on what had happened for me. And that was hugely helpful. Um, the problem, the challenge, because the uh, it is impossible to legally run anything in this country uh, using, say, ayahuasca, for example, because it's illegal, it is, it is really difficult to, um, to network very much about it. Uh, and, and it's difficult to find an opportunity to do what I would love to do, which would be to, to be the therapist who works with people after they have had the, 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 um, the experiences with the, whether it's um, psilocybin or with, uh, or with ayahuasca mm. uh, or anything else because of that barrier of illegality. Now, I'm, I am still, I'm still manage, managing to do it, but I have to do it with great, um, with great care and uh, even to, you know, admit publicly to, that I'm doing it. I mean, there, there may be a risk involved in that, but to it, to answer your question honestly, I think it's, it is worth doing that. So, mm. um, uh, my impulse is to to do as much of that work as I can, given that there are barriers. And talking to other psychotherapists, I think there is still a lot of fear. A lot of fear. I mean, I spoke to my um, supervisor, for example. And she said, and understandably uh, said, uh, because it's it, any because the substances are illegal, I cannot, I cannot, you know, have any. I cannot talk about any aspect of that. So there's a huge amount of fear, yeah. and until that fear is reduced uh, by the um, uh, uh, substances being made legal. Mm. I think that bar that will be quite a huge barrier in this country. But, of course. of course, it is different in other places. Well, actually, you just reminded me of our first guest. So the first guest way back when on episode one, season one of the How to Die Happy podcast was a chap called Liam Farquhar. And Liam is... I listened to that. Ah, yeah. okay, so you heard right. Well, so as you know, he's London-based. He's a certified psilocybin guide. And how he navigates the, the trickery is to, uh, is, to, is to work with the clients in Amsterdam with the medicines. That's right. Uh, and then there is, I think there's pre- and post-therapy in the UK. Not ideal, as, as you can imagine. Nevertheless, he, it, it seems to work for him. And... Um, well, it's not surprising. He set up that consultancy practice very, very close to us doing the podcast, and he is overwhelmed with clients now. And um, I've, I, he regularly shares the testimonials that, that, uh, that these people write to him, and they are absolutely beautiful. You know, they make your heart sing. Uh, he's treating people with PTSD and with trauma all the time. Incredibly successfully and that's the point that's the the phenomenal point of this whole thing is yeah i get it there is fear there's fear from the authorities 
There's fear from the, the medical fraternity. Fraternity? It's not very fair, is it? Medical profession. <laughs> it's a bit misogynistic, mis- misogynistic isn't it? Uh, medical profession. Uh, and there's fear from the general public. Mm-hmm. And I, I think if I could give, you know, one sort of nugget to anybody listening to this is this is the work we have to do to overcome I think right now because words are given meaning uh, sometimes accidentally and sometimes most deliberately as part of a, of a plan you know and words can be used as programming uh, just as they can be used to convince and and so on and so forth and manipulate and so on and so forth so one day if a government is referring to plant medicines as drugs, drugs are bad, okay, drugs are bad, um, but then the next minute they flip the script and decide actually it's a medicine, and this is what's happening, by the way, everybody. Governments are now saying, okay, yeah, well, we get it, they are medicines. We we probably do need to reframe this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it didn't change. The plant didn't change. The treatment didn't change. The, the use of this thing didn't change. It was just the words that were used around it. So... I would uh, echo uh, something that Keith said earlier on, and that is just do your research, you know, but do your own research properly. Don't just look at what Wikipedia says and what Google says um, or what Facebook says, because those three sites, for example, have, have, are actually trying to deliver certain results to you. It's quite organized in that regard. So you've got you've to dig deep and, and do a lot of research. And yeah, of course, you're going to find some nightmare stories. But then there is a nightmare story for everything. And, but I guarantee there's a backstory to the nightmare stories. And, I, and I'll tell you this, and I said this on, the, on one of our other episodes when we were talking about ayahuasca. Usually the nightmare stories are because they're in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're with the wrong people. They're with the wrong guide. And they may well have also been consuming alcohol or, and or narcotics. Um, I know for a fact, it, I, whether or not you know this, but you go to South America, you can get some of the best cocaine on the planet and it's, it's available on, on every street corner for $5 a bag. It's very, very pure stuff. Uh, I haven't taken it in South America, incidentally, because I've been sober. I was sober when I went there, but I, I was reliably informed. So when people are going to these countries and, and getting involved in plant medicine, they're also in the same weekend getting involved with consuming high-grade narcotics Mm -hmm. that's why people are having terrible terrible experiences also i'd I'd say it has to really resonate with you you know i think rather than i think we we did cover this but often it's don't allow it to be something that you're pressured into like a lot of things happen you know you hear about this oh gosh i should try it i have never tried it you know i didn't work with ayahuasca till i was 33 you know maybe 34 um, because it had never, it was never on my radar. It never, it just, it didn't factor into my life. Um, and then when it, when, when the opportunity presented itself, everything was perfect. The set, the setting. And I felt deep down a calling to work with the medicine. So it's almost like this communication started happening between myself and the medicine. And that's when I was like, okay, I am going to do this. And I was quite fearful. I had, I had, I had quite a lot of fear around it. Um, but I have heard stories of other people thinking, oh, it's one of those things you have to do. I've just got to go and I've got to go to South America and I have to work with it. And then they don't have a very good experience because it's it's almost like they've pressured themselves into it. They've not allowed it to kind of just naturally, naturally happen. Mm. No, I think that's fair enough. Mm. Well, ultimately, this is 
this comes down to to healing, doesn't it? And uh, I, there are three things I know about healing. One is that we all do it at our own pace. Um, two is there's no magic bullet. And three is you really have to want it. Simple as that. And if you have got to that point where you acknowledge that there's some some significant work that you need to do to change the way you're feeling, the way you're interacting, the way you're interacting with yourself and or with others, uh, and you are interested to look out with of the traditional psychotherapy route, and that's no disrespect to you and your colleagues, of course, Keith, for all the right reasons, then um, you ought to absolutely consider the use of psychedelics, but the responsible use of psychedelics. And as you've as we've identified by talking to Keith today, the wonderful thing is with people like Keith around, you could do that work and then go and see a psychotherapist and try and talk some of that stuff through. And I, and I think that's super important. And we t- you mentioned integration, Jules. A key, key thing, and a lot of people don't get this right. Uh, no, Well, listen, right, wrong. It's all about perspective, isn't it? But I, I know of people who have worked with ayahuasca, for example, regularly and for lengthy periods of time. And uh, I, I met a chap, actually, who's who had a partner, and she'd done a thousand, around a thousand ayahuasca journeys. She was almost, well, she probably was addicted to the ayahuasca journeys. Now, I must say, there's nothing physically addictive about an ayahuasca journey, uh, about the medicine, by the way. Yeah, when you, when you taste it, you'll realise why. <laughs> and and when you've done it, you know, when, 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 the, when the work's done, you don't feel compelled to do it again. You know, it's as simple as that. Uh, so there's nothing addictive at all. But I think what this woman, well, this, this was his, his perspective, but he felt that she was addicted to checking out of reality. This reality. Reality, I say, <laughs> you know, what is reality? But she, she, preferred, she preferred being there, yeah. you know, wherever there is, right? with this medicine than, than doing the actual earth school work here. And I think that's the point about integration. It's all well and good for us to, to put ourselves through all of these, these um, practices and spiritual processes and plant medicines and so on and so forth. But ultimately, newsflash, you know, whether, or not, whether we like it or not, we're born into earth school for a reason. We're in the earth rover for a reason. And for as long as we're here, we're here. And... Actually, we've got to be able to integrate what we learn and what we experience in these on these journeys back into into life with other humans. And actually, Ramdas talked talked about this, and I remember being quite profoundly taken by uh, by that because it, it reminded me of my own journey and how I perhaps have got a little bit lost in the the spiritual awakening side of things. And actually, I was I was I was I was Zen. I was living on a beach. Well, not on the beach. You know, obviously, in a house on the beach. When you met me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was basically a hermit. I, I'd, uh, I'd I'd stopped doing any work. I was just doing the work, and I was uh, super super zen. But then I had to start going out and interacting with humans again. And you know, it's tough for that, isn't it? Well, we have to really learn to <laughs> fully integrate into this form. We do. Yeah. We do. So. Sorry, Keith, we talked a lot then, and uh, you're our guest, so we should let you talk. But um, before we close off what I suspect could be a 12-hour podcast if we just carried <laughs> <Yeah>. on, um, <laughs> what, so what's next for you then with all of this in mind? That's a really interesting one. 
um, uh, I've been wondering, you know, at, at, at my age, I'm, st I'm still on the planet and um, I'm enjoying my life. I love my work and I'm excited by what we've been talking about today. Mm. I mean, that has uh, really energized me and activated me. And I, I'm not sure where I fit in, but I think it may be something to do with um, uh, talking to people, encouraging them to look at this as a possibility, not to be frightened of it, uh, and to um, open to heightened awareness about this whole area. And, you know, you, bless you, have given me the opportunity to be a part of that by, you know, joining you on the podcast. And I think maybe to be an advocate, I don't particularly feel like going off to Holland. I know a bit about the organization in Holland. And in fact, a friend of mine is a completely mad psychiatrist, uh, but I guess all psychiatrists are probably a bit mad, <laughs> and um, from Ice Iceland. And he went and did the did the uh, um, uh, uh, the program in Holland uh, as part of his research, or that was his story. And um, uh, to be actively involved, I'm not sure. I, it may have come too late in this lifetime. Uh, of course, I can always always come back quickly and um, and get involved, you know, as a, as a young man again, which would be exciting. Mm -hmm. But um, no, I think it's uh, for me the future. I think it's about being. Uh, an advocate and where where I do have the opportunity to be involved practically to take that opportunity and to bring to it everything in terms of the uh, the care and respect uh, and the integrity and the intention which it deserves to 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 bring that to it so to, to sort of model uh, what the approach that I would would like uh, others to take to it. And that probably sounds a bit vague, but uh, at this stage in my life, I think it is, I think it is realistic. And then who knows? Who knows? The universe may open up something up tomorrow, which is entirely different, and say, Keith, you don't know what you're talking about yeah. because <laughs> the, your life, your your life, you you don't run your life. Your life is is part of a wonderful sort of um, uh, clockwork. Where and every 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 being on the planet is involved, and uh, so and you are part of that. So just wait and see what occurs. So there's partly an intention and partly an openness to whatever comes. Mm. Well, I think that's a wonderful aspiration. But there, there were a number of reasons why we wanted to have you on the show, and I think one was that you've been a psychotherapist for, for so long and of course because you've you've at a late age a late stage um discovered ayahuasca and i, and I thought that was fascinating in itself i, I and i i wanted our, our audience to to hear a, a completely different perspective on this right and, and from a man in, in his late 70s a psychotherapist in his late 70s i think that's pretty awesome right mm -hmm. Um, but of course, there's one thing I didn't ask you about. Now, I'm not, <laughs> it's just sound in any way, shape or form morbid, but of course, How to Die Happy is wrapped around this thread of the, the, the top 10 common deathbed regrets. 
And uh, I, I suppose what we're talking about here, overcoming fear, embracing change, surrendering, is a thing, it, it's, it's, it's something incredibly dear to our hearts and it's something that we are constantly keen to communicate on this show to, to anyone who will listen. And here's the beautiful thing. You can do this at any age. So now I'm, I'm thinking you're pushing 80. Has this, this recent experience you've had, what effect has that had on your perspective of death? I think I, I, I've had quite a, a strong um, perspective on death for quite a long time, but it's, it's changed recently. Um, so I'm afraid I have to tell you a very briefly a little story that a long time ago I read uh, uh, about the circumstances of the death of a man called Ronnie Lang, R.D. Lang, mm -hmm. who was a famous uh, psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, the, uh, I don't know whether you know how Ronnie Lang died, but he's, he was an extraordinary man. He was. Uh, he pushed the boundaries in a lot of ways. He uh, was uh, used a lot of drugs, a lot of alcohol. He was an iconoclast. He really turned the this the uh, psychiatry world upside down by putting the the uh, the patient, as they were known, first. Mm. Because the uh, prior to Ronnie Lang, really the psychiatrist had been seen as the sort of the godlike figure who who. Um, uh, arranged other people's lives, and, and Lang saw it another way. And that endeared him to me enormously. He was a Scottish Scottish guy. And uh, anyway, his death, he was 77, and he was playing tennis with a uh, beautiful 27-year-old Swedish girl in uh, <laughs> um, the south of France. And um, he had a heart attack on the court. He was playing at the in the, uh, the, high, the heat of the day, and um, he had a heart attack. And he fell to the ground, and of course everybody rushed up, and somebody uh, uh, said, quickly, get a doctor. And apparently Ronnie Lang opened one eye, and um, I'm going to have to change one word in this uh, to, to make it suitable for your podcast. And he said, who said anything about a bloody doctor? <laughs> and that, to me, was a sign. He, he actually wanted to die. He knew he was that ready. was his time. Yeah. And what a way to and go out. And from then on, I've, I've had this fixation about um, dying at 77, which is how old I am now. Uh -huh. and, and that has felt absolutely fine. And then I realized I'd become attached to the idea. It was a sort of a romantic idea. And... Um, then I thought, wait a minute, what if the universe has different plans for me? What if actually, you know, what we've been talking about today, what is if as an advocate, I can spend a number of years being, being useful, being part of this process? So I, I have let go of that idea of dying at 77. It doesn't worry me. If I do, that's fine. Mm. I'm enjoying my life and I would love to die still enjoying my life. Mm. And I think my, I think to, to have reached the point where I can say my life is rich, my life is rewarding, and I'm ready, to, I'm ready to leave this planet whenever I leave the planet is really what I'm able to do now. And um, I, 
I just am very grateful that I've had the, the richness of experience, which seems to continue. You know, I come to ayahuasca at the 74 or whatever I was, and I think, wow, maybe there are other rich experiences for me in life. So I will just hang around. I won't be attached to staying or going. I will be attached to enjoying each day, enjoying my life. And when I die, I die. Ah, oh, that is brilliant, Keith. I hope, I hope, I just, I just want everybody to feel that way, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I, 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 and I'm, I'm painfully aware that, you know, my dad's 79, so I think about his generation and his upbringing. I'm painfully aware that there are an awful lot of people in his generation, and you know, even in my generation, who aren't, who haven't been fortunate enough to have the experiences or the, uh, or the realizations to be able to, to, to have this perspective that you have and that we have. I share your perspective. If, if I got told I was going to die tomorrow, I'd be like, cool, man, bring it on. It's been a hell of a ride. Um, and I'm super grateful for every step of it, even the really painful stuff, you know, uh, because the, there was a lesson in every one of those events. Didn't feel like it at the time, of course, because it never does, does it? But, um, and, uh, and I, I so I, I, I I wonder what it is we can do for our fellow brothers and sisters on this planet to to help them share this perspective, you know? Yeah, I suppose I just have this lofty aspiration. It's part and parcel of why we're doing this show. No, it's why we're doing this show. To, to invite people at any age, in any place in their life to stop for a moment and, and ask them, ask themselves, if you got told you have five minutes left to live right now, what would be on your list of regrets? Now, we've just rightly, we've or rather wonderfully learned you wouldn't have a list. I wouldn't have a list. Would you have a list? Maybe, maybe. Okay, that's all right. But this list of deathbed regrets that, uh, that have been, there's been curated through these studies, it's a pretty miserable list. You know, it's, I wish I'd, said I love you more, I wish I hadn't held grudges, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings, I wish I'd had the courage to follow my dreams, and so on and so forth. And, you know, and when I say miserable, I, I don't mean that with any judgment. I, I guess I just, it just makes me a little bit sad that people are on their deathbed gasping for gasping for breath or whatever's happening to them at that point, and, and they are filled with fear and regret. And I know, just speaking from my own personal experience uh, of, of what I've seen in the last few years, that there is nothing to fear and there is a lot more going on than, than anybody actually knows. So the whole point and purpose of this podcast is to invite people to learn the arts of living. And if you can learn, well, that's the secret to dying well, is learning how to live well, right? If I may just add one thought to that, that um, I would offer you the possibility that actually it's not about um, uh, fear of dying. It's about, it's about dealing with fear while we're alive. So once the, once fearfulness, once we have been able to uh, release um, our attachment to 
to life and our, atta our attachment to anything and to let go of our fear of anything, then death itself is just one of the, the things which is, no, which is no longer an object of fear. So I think, I mean, there's quite a lot of focus on, you know, are people frightened of death? And I think we can deal with fear th while we are alive. And I feel I've been blessed with opportunities, including the ayahuasca experience very much, to let go of fear. And, and that, I'm sure, is contributing to the way that I see death. It is um, because fear itself, which ruled, ruled me for a great, a, a, a huge amount of my life, fear of how I was going to be seen, fear of how I was going to be perceived, fear of whether I was going to be abandoned, fear of, you know, whether I was okay, whether I was worthy of love. I mean, just fear after fear after fear. And I think as I have progressively been able to release my level of fear, then death is simply one of those things which is no longer fearful. I am no longer fearful of death. Mm. Well, that's a wonderful uh, gift to give yourself then, isn't it? Ah, oh, Keith. Well, as we've identified, I think we, we could do this uh, for quite a long time, couldn't we? <laughs> Perhaps we should uh, have you back on and uh, and pick another uh, topic to, uh, to to play. But in the meantime, I just I just like to say thank you incredibly a thousand times for your time, your energy, your wisdom, and uh, and your vulnerability as well. Thanks for sharing uh, some of this stuff because uh, you know as we know, not everybody wants to talk about these sort of things. Certainly not on a podcast. So very grateful. Mm, yeah, thank you so much, Keith. That was. A really lovely chat to have with you. It's been a lovely experience and I'm really grateful to you both. Well, the gratitude goes uh, two ways. And if you audience members, hello, have enjoyed this episode or indeed enjoy any of our episodes, please consider sharing a little bit of gratitude also. So if you can visit howtodiehappypodcast.com uh, forward slash reviews we would love to have some reviews from you and um, you know if you don't feel like saying anything nice then don't review us <laughs> just kidding we'll, we'll take we'll take all feedback somebody once said to me breakfast is the feedback of champions Martin he was a bit of a salesman but uh, yeah anyway thank you uh, Keith thanks Jules thanks Martin Thanks, everyone. I shall, I shall go, on, go on at once and give myself several rave reviews. <laughs> <laughs> we like that. You will be welcome, sir. Thanks very much, Keith. <laughs> Namaste. Thank you. Go well. Likewise. Peace Bye. and love. See you Take soon. Care. Bye. Bye-bye.